0: This is hell Okie doke Live from late capitalism Where we know the price of everything But the value of nothing This Is hell National parks are where we connect with nature Absent the horrific Impact of industrial capitalism They are refuges For pristine ecosystems Untouched by human hand Or at least as much as they can be In conserving the wilds, we are still able to commune with what is an increasingly disappearing and natural landscape. By saving it from, by keeping distinctly separate from humanity, we may even be able to save the world from climate change. That's at least what was being considered at last December's UN Conference on Biodiversity. At the time, The Guardian reported that the plan is to fulfill the dreams of the late biologist, naturalist, ecologist, entomologist, the father of sociobiology, E.O. Wilson's. Wilson advocated for protecting half the planet for the long-term survival of humanity. The movement is known as 30 by 30, like 30x30, 30 by 30, as in 30% of land protected and managed by 2030. A group called Campaign for Nature pushed for 30% of land and sea by 2030 for so-called protection. Director Brian O'Donnell described it as a floor, not a ceiling, saying the world should be pushing towards 50% protected land. O'Donnell says the areas that need to be preserved the most have to include the most biodiverse rich areas with connections between them to avoid island conservation. So large swaths of planet would have no contact with people and we would have no contact with it. Many think this sounds idyllic. Unless you happen to be the people who have lived in this, in the very biodiverse, resource rich areas that they want to protect. And you're told it's time that you give up your relationship with nature and your sustainable practices and leave. On closer inspection, when you consider Wilson's plan, current conservation pol- policy known as fortress conservation. Uh, the national ra- uh, nationalism wrapped in the national parks And celebrity endorsements for conservation areas worldwide It all starts to look like just another project of Settler colonialism and displacing indigenous peoples As well as criminalizing their practices and religion Returning to This Is Hell today Climate justice activist Post-colonial scholar And writer Ashley Dawson Is co-editor of Decolonized Conservation Global Voices for Indigenous Self-Determination, Land, and a World in Common. This collection of essays is co-edited by by Fiore Longo and Survival International. Ashley is currently Professor of Postcolonial Studies at the Graduate Center, City University of New York, and the College of Staten Island. Ashley's most recent book, Prior to Decolonized Conservation, is titled People's Power, Reclaiming the Energy Commons. And Ashley was on our show in 2020 to talk about people's power. Ashley's other books include Extreme Cities, The Peril and Promise of Urban Life in the Age of Climate Change, which we spoke with Ashley about back in October of 2017. Ashley is also author of Extinction, A Radical History, which, again, we discussed with Ashley back in April of 2016. You can find all of those interviews at thisishell.com when you search on Dawson. And then you can listen to each and every one of those conversations absolutely free at our website, thisishell.com. Ashley works in the fields of environmental humanities and uh, post-colonial eco-criticism. Other areas of interest of Ashley's include the experience and literature of migration, including movement from colonial and post-colonial nations to the former imperial center, Britain in particular, and from rural areas to megacities of the global south, such as Lagos and Mumbai. So if you've read Mike Davis's Planet of Slums, much along the same lines of Ashley's research. Ashley is a member of the Social Text Collective, which you can find out more about at SocialTextJournal.org and the founder of CUNY Climate Action Lab, and you can find out more about the Climate Action Lab at CenterForTheHumanities.org This is Ashley's sixth appearance on This Is Hell. Find out more about Ashley at AshleyDawson.info. Follow Ashley on Twitter at AshleyDawsonNYC. Producing today is Kat Jarvanen. This is the first time, Kat, you are producing the show. Welcome, it's great to have you working with us. How was your weekend?
1: Thank you, Chuck, it's great to be here. My weekend was awesome. I've been teaching an art class for the last couple months and it was the last day on Saturday, so.
0: What kind of art are you teaching?
1: Um, a digital art class. Oh, no kidding, where? Yeah, Um, at Marwin. It's like a free, it uh, provides free art programming.
0: Oh, so is it through the city?
1: Uh, no, it's a it's a nonprofit. I believe it's a nonprofit.
0: Because uh, my partner used to, she used to take uh, ceramics classes through the city, and she couldn't believe how great the facilities were. She was really surprised at how awesome the facilities are for the city and the park district when it takes the comes to art classes. Who knew? Yeah.
2: yeah.
0: So my weekend started off great, but went real bad. <laughs> A little after midnight on Friday night, I was over here enjoying the opening of an art show at the art gallery just outside of our studio doors as we share the space with an art gallery, which is cool. And I saw a lot of artists who I know and love, saw their work, saw a whole bunch of other artists I haven't seen their work before, really great work. I mean, there's a lot of people in the show. It's a 20-artist show, so it's pretty big. And I was admittedly at least a few sheets to the wind, maybe a little bit in the bag. When I left to take the one-block walk home, I got up to our third-floor apartment, and as I stepped in the bathroom, I somehow slipped, was unable to catch myself, and fell flat on my face on the tile floor, banging my elbow and knee as I headed for the floor, leading to a bloody nose, a large contusion on my face, a fat lip, pretty sure I got it. Another concussion, which I think is my fifth. But when you've had that many concussions, you kind of forget. And I look really, really gross. (laughs) I have a dentist. It looks bad. It does look bad. It looks really bad. (laughs) I have a dentist appointment later this week to make certain everything's okay because I'm really not sure. I'm hoping it is. But after this past year of a life-threatening bout of sepsis, getting COVID, a root canal, and upcoming hernia surgery next month... If you're wondering what a friend asked me, and that was, good Lord, Mertz, what's next to join the club? In fact, had we not already posted this week's question from hell for you, our listening audience, that would definitely have been this week's question from hell. What is next for me? Uh, well, this was definitely alcohol-related. This morning, completely sober, the exact same thing almost happened again. Ever since I left the hospital a little over a year ago, I've experienced these lightheaded dizzy spells when going from a sitting to a standing position or when bending over and then straightening up, I almost fall over. But every time, I've been able to catch myself like I did this morning but was able, unable to do so last Friday night. However, out of an abundance of precaution, Because I should take a break from the sauce We will not be holding our weekly meet and greet This is Hell Office Hours this week They will return next Wednesday, May 17th But more important than me falling flat on my face Kat, what is this week's question from Hell for our listening audience?
1: Uh, this week's question from Hell is: What intelligence will you be leaking on our Discord?
0: Obviously, I will not be leaking any kind of intelligence anywhere. <laughs> but you can leave your answer <laughs> to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page, or you can tweet it at us at uh, at This Is Hell Radio. You can email it to us at chuckatthisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show, when we will be announcing this week's winner, as we do every week. Following. A moment of truth from contributor Jeff Dorchin. If your answer is our favorite, you will get your choice of This Is Hell stuff that is now available at thisishell.com when clicking on support. And thanks to listener Janine Jay, who showed her support this week for This Is Hell. Janine, we truly and deeply appreciate it. Janine, I cannot thank you enough. And on a completely unrelated note, this has nothing to do with the Janine J who so, showed so much wonderful support for This Is Hell this weekend. Have you ever heard the Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting radio show Counterpunch? FAIR has been a huge supporter of This Is Hell since our beginning way back in 1996. Their radio show, Counterspin, provides a critical examination of the important news stories every week and exposes what corporate media might have missed in their own coverage. Counterspin highlights censored stories and exposes biased and inaccurate coverage, while examining the power of corporate influence and sexism, racism, and homophobia in the news. At least that's what their website says. Coincidentally, it's hosted by someone named Janine. Janine J., in fact. Janine Jackson. Which, again, has nothing at all to do with the wonderful support we recently received from someone named Janine J. And if you have not yet checked out Janine Jackson's Counterspin radio show, you should Go find out more at FAIR.org, F-A-I-R.org. Kat, brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover, this is hell, and Kat has this week's hangover cure.
1: Yes, I do. Um, This week's hangover cure is licorice in some form or another. The Sun quotes clinician-scientist Professor Merlin Thomas saying, quote, The chemical that provides licorice's sweetness temporarily triggers your kidneys to make less urine, the opposite of what alcohol does. In theory, you'll feel less dehydrated in the morning. Meanwhile, allthingshealth.com states that the traditional Chinese medicine cure of mung bean and licorice root can help remove heat and toxins from the body. Then there's the New Hope Network, which cites herbalist Bev Maya saying, uh, this is a tough word, Deglycerazinated licorice.
0: Wow. Congratulations. <laughs> I worked on that all weekend. I couldn't figure it out.
1: Deglycerizinated. I practiced. Um, known as DGL, has been found in numerous studies to increase the mucus that protects the gastrointestinal tract. Wellandnicecity.com brings up a study in the Journal of Food Chemistry that found licorice as having antioxidant, free radical scavenging, immunostimulating properties. And the Guardian finds an ancient Mesopotamian physician of 5000 BCE wrote, quote, If a man has taken strong wine and his head is affected, take licorice, beans, oleander with oil and wine in the morning before sunrise and before anyone has kissed him, let him take it and he will recover. That makes this week's Hangover Cure licorice in one form or another.
0: And oddly taking a sexist turn there at the end. (laughs) I (laughs) was unaware of that. (laughs) On Twitter, at This Is Hell Radio, we got a question from Hell Suggestion from Nurse Kobe. Nurse Kobe suggests, we ask you all, what do you plan to eat in a post-agricultural world? led me to wonder what the hell is a post-agricultural world? Agriculture is the growing and cultivating of crops or raising of livestock for food or clothing or other necessary uses. Without it, it would seem like we would not be able to survive predating agriculture. Current historical evidence suggests we were a hunter-gatherer society, so I guess in a post-agricultural world, we would revert to pre-agricultural practices and we would eat whatever we could successfully hunt or get or forage. But... We would likely be in that post-agricultural world due to some global cataclysm, so who knows what we would be left to stock and kill or what food we can scavenge. Either that or cannibalism, as humans have proven that when under siege by military forces and cut off from any supplies, humans will eat humans, as was the case during the nearly two-and-a-half-year siege of Leningrad by the Nazis during the Second World War. So post-agriculture, our choices would seem to be hunting, gathering, and eating each other. Unless that is Nurse Cody If you are talking about post-industrial agriculture In that case I'll be eating a lot more local food And growing my own So everything will be just fine Coming up, conservation is colonialism Kat will be sharing more of your Or some of your answers To this week's question from hell We will tell you what happened During last week's Patreon podcast Exclusively for subscribers At patreon.com slash thisishell And Patreon patrons right now you get a special bonus. Trigger warning. It's access to a really grisly picture of me the morning after I face-planted in my bathroom. But again, you can only see that picture and get all that stuff at patreon.com slash thisishell. Also coming up, it's The Past Inside the Present with historian Dr. Sebastian Vupper, who offers the historical context of the past that we need to have a better understanding of the present. Kat, what's Seb talking about this week?
1: Seb talks about the ways in which white evangelicalism has flattened our understanding of Christianity and how the history of some radical Dominican sisters provides a corrective of what kinds of things are possible under the label Christian.
0: Oh, always blame the Dominicans. Oh, I hate that about it, Sebastian. <laughs> this, the world is on fire and this is hell. Look, all that's needed to protect the world from climate change is to protect the world from us, right? or some some would like you to believe. But not all human interaction, not every human relationship with nature is as resource and planet-devouring as industrial capitalism. Here to help us have a better understanding of conservation, returning to This Is Hell, climate justice activist, post-colonial scholar and writer Ashley Dawson is co-editor of the new collection Decolonize Conservation Global Voices for Indigenous Self-Determination Land and a World in Common a collection of essays he co-edited with Fiore Longo and Survival International welcome back to This Is Hell Ashley
2: thank you so much Chuck it's good to be back with you Thank and you. I'm sorry to hear about the dust up you had this weekend. <laughs> yes,
0: yeah, I got in a big fight with the bathroom floor and I lost. So, this is your sixth appearance on the show and with that you get I'm sorry, absolutely nothing. I really. <laughs> my, my... <laughs> that's
2: okay. I'm a professor. I'm used to getting uh, virtually uh, nothing. Yes.
0: So. <laughs> there you go, especially when teaching people things. So that's what I'm hoping you'll be doing today. So yeah, yeah. you write in the May 2020 issue, there was a story of the, in the Atlantic uh, magazine uh, where Native American author and activist uh, David Troyer published an article titled Return the Na- National Parks to the Tribes. In this piece, Troyer details the genocidal violence through which Native American tribes were expelled from some of the U.S.'s earliest and most famous national parks. So I couldn't not think about, sorry about the double negative, uh, the Ken Burns National Parks PBS series and how it's a stunningly beautiful series about the beauty of nature. How much did you see that series, and how much do you think that series is, or any part of the series? How much do you think that series is, basically U.S. colonial propaganda?
2: Unfortunately, I've not seen that series, but I have definitely logged my uh, fair percentage of, uh, you know, uh, films about nature. Um, you know, uh, lots of David Attenborough watching under my belt. Um, so I think I have a bit of a sense of. What you're talking about. Um, Yeah, you know, those kinds of documentaries specialize in sort of sweeping vistas, a lot of them produced by drones of uh, completely depopulated, beautiful areas. No human beings there, you know, maybe some beautiful birds or bears or something like that. But what they tend to do is reproduce a very colonial perspective, right? Because the way that settler colonial people Legitimated taking over the land was to talk about it as uh, empty land. You know, the the Latin term was terra nullius, you know, land that had nobody in it, essentially. And so a lot of contemporary films about nature are direct uh, replications of that perspective. Um, And so I would say, yeah, they are definitely colonial.
0: So for visitors who go to a national park, how apparent is it that the lands that they are visiting were stolen from indigenous people? Are there markers or museums or information centers? Are those increasingly becoming more popular that blatantly inform visitors that they are on stolen land? Maybe not in those terms, but that these lands uh, were taken from indigenous. How much is that uh, history erased from the view of visitors? Because Just one last thing I just want to mention real quick, uh, Ashley, is that there's a a state park here in uh, Illinois called Starved Rock, it has the story that there's a very large pluton, and at the top of it, the story is that some Native American tribes starved out another Native American tribe that was at the top of this rock. Now, the story is completely a fiction. It was created by descendants of Native Americans to try to build a tourist place at this spot. And I'm telling you, Ashley... That is the most indigenous history I've ever seen at a state or national park in my life. And it was about how an indigenous family conned people into thinking that there was an indigenous atrocity at this site. So it just seemed to me like finally I'm getting to see some indigenous history and all I'm learning is about an indigenous con man as the way it's portrayed there. So how much, is it increasingly becoming popular for national parks and for conservation areas to tell visitors that this is a land that was taken from the indigenous?
2: That's a great question. Um, Unfortunately, I can't give you a direct answer. I I haven't done research on, you know, the extent to which the National Park Service is trying to acknowledge its colonial history. Um, You know, I would suspect that not too much of that is done. Um, And that's why I think uh, David Troyer's article that you you cited is so important, because it fills us in to the history of um, how Yosemite was founded based on essentially, you know, genocidal evacuation of the Miwok indigenous uh, Californian people from, from the land um, that the park was founded on. Um, and, you know, I think it would be great if there were more of the kinds of placards or other information that you're, you're talking about in national parks. Um, that would be a good step, just like uh, the land acknowledgments that frequently are um, given before people give public talks in academia. Now, you know, um, I don't know if you've been to any talks like this, Chuck, but people will often sort of start out before they're going to do a presentation, saying, you know, we are uh, on the land of, um, you know, a particular indigenous group, and we want to acknowledge this land and their historical presence here, and and then the proceedings will go on. Um, And and it's good that there's that kind of acknowledgement. There's very seldom any kind of discussion of actually, you know, giving that line back um, to the indigenous people whom it was taken away from, or, you know, other indigenous groups in other places. So um, I I think that if there is a trend towards putting up those placards, it would be better than absolutely nothing. But the question which david Troyer brings up in his article in the atlantic and, and which our collection decolonized conservation really tries to emphasize is that um there's a, a history of colonial dispossession um that it's important to be aware of but that's not enough we also need to think about uh, you know securing indigenous sovereignty over land uh today because indigenous people are the people who around the world today are uh, preserving biodiversity um, it's not the national parks and we can we can get into that in in more detail going forward but yeah you know just just acknowledging something like that would be good um, it would definitely fly in the face of the kind of wilderness ethic behind the national parks you know the idea that faces like Yellowstone or Yosemite are our country's equivalent of the European cathedrals, that there are these beautiful natural areas that we need to preserve that never had people in them and just had some uh, wonderful Flora and fauna, and you know we should set them aside, except for the millions of tourists who are going to tramp through them every year to to camp in them and, and visit them. Oh, and in many cases, you know the extractive industries that um, we allow to operate on on federal land and and take out timber or oil or or coal. Um, So, you know, um, this kind of ideology of, of unpopulated wilderness is, is very, very strong. Um, and, uh, you know, it would take a lot, I think, to undo that ideology, um, and certainly more than a a few placards here and there. Um, and behind all of this lies the question, not just in the U S but sort of globally, um, what are we going to do to, um, really support indigenous sovereignty, which, um, I and the other contributors to decolonized conservation argue is really the way forward um, to uh, protect biodiversity around the world.
0: So can acknowledgement be a distraction from that indigenous uh, sovereignty? We'll put up a sign and we'll acknowledge that you were here, but that's the extent that we will we we'll go to. Can that acknowledgement actually become a distraction, a, a kind of liberal distraction, a concession to the indigenous peoples?
2: Yeah, um, I think that that's the case. I mean, if you if you look globally, there um, is almost zero actual willingness to give sovereignty to indigenous and other sort of land dependent people over uh, the land where protected areas or, you know, the equivalent of national parks get set up. I I cite a recent report that says that uh, in only one percent of protected areas to Indigenous people around the world actually have full sovereignty. So you know, um, the idea of expanding protected areas to from 17 percent, which is what it's now at, to 30 percent of the planet, as you as you mentioned at the outset, you know, which was the the goal, which was. Um, proclaimed as the, the global goal at uh, the United Nations Conference on Biodiversity uh, last, last autumn in Montreal. Um, that goal really involves massive expansion of um, a kind of arrangement uh, for control of the land that is going to push lots of people off the land. What you do, do see more often instead of full indigenous sovereignty is some kind of idea of sort of co-management, um, between a national government or you know a park authority and the people who've lived on the land for for many centuries, um, uh, so maybe that's closer to what you're kind of alluding to, some kind of like liberal kind of wishy washy half acknowledgement of indigenous rights and indigenous sovereignty, but um, you know it effectively robs local people of their their right to stay in the park, um, and so. You know, conservation sounds great when you when you think about the fact that we're in this massive biodiversity crisis. And you know, you had me on your show to talk about that in the past, as as you mentioned um, in the lead up. Um, it, it's it's a huge crisis. You know, we're we're losing um, huge numbers of of mammals, birds, fish, amphibians, uh, all around the planet. The the rates are are really shocking like 68% loss of populations of of animals between 1917 and 2016 and it's not just animals it's also plant species Um, And and all of that is a a horrible tragedy, not just because of the intrinsic worth of nature, but um, it's also a crisis for human beings, you know, just think about the kind of declines in pollinator species like bees, butterflies and moths. So given all of that, the natural reaction, I think, is to say, well, you know, conservation is a no brainer. We just need to set aside more of the natural world and kind of protect it. But what that actually involves is um, kicking people who have stewarded and supported biodiversity for, for many, many centuries off their land and you know patrolling it with, in many cases, um, guards who are armed to the teeth and who will kill those indigenous people if they try and come back to their traditional land. Um, and when you kick the people who've been on the land off, um, you know, yeah, maybe you have uh, a kind of wilderness in the traditional sort of settler colonial idea of the wilderness, but it's effectively an empty space. And that often allows um, for extractive industries to, to come in. Um, so it doesn't actually save biodiversity and it can also contribute to uh, climate change, you know, cause you get extractive industries cutting down trees or taking out oil from the land. So, yeah, we really need to start kind of thinking about what conservation is and and specifically about how the big corporate conservation groups that are all based in in the U.S., some of them in in Western Europe, but mainly the U.S., you know, what is their history and what are they doing at the moment um, as uh, they, they sort of proclaim that expanding protected areas is the way to go to deal with the biodiversity crisis and the climate crisis.
0: So how can this protection and management of land lead to extractive industries going in? It would seem like that's the whole point of the protection and the management of this land to make certain that extractive industries do not go into those areas. So how do protected areas end up being uh, exploited by extractive industries?
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um... You know, to to answer, I think it's worth looking at some of the other colonial roots of conservation. Uh, we start out by talking about national parks in the U.S., and they are often sort of seen as the model, which was established in the U.S. and then exported globally. Uh, you know, for for national parks and protected areas around the world, but. There are other routes to conservation that are important. Um, And in in my research, I've looked specifically at what the British Empire did um, in the 19th century. So um, Brits became aware that uh, some of the forests in the areas that they dominated, for instance, in in India, that those forests were being depleted, um, you know the the Royal Navy, which dominated the seas at the time, needed lots of uh, very tall trees that were nice and straight for their masts. Uh, they cut down most of the trees in the British Isles, and so when Britain expanded all around the world, they started cutting down trees elsewhere, you know, including in um, some of the the forests in India, and so it was, you know, either the East India Company itself in the 18th and 19th centuries, or people working for for the East India Company who were harvesting timber from from those lands. Um, and so, what happened essentially was that there was a shift from seeing those forests as um, infinite, you know, as a as a resource that could constantly be exploited, um, uh, and it would not lead to uh, depletion of timber resources by the early 19th century you begin to see some of the east india the british east india company officials setting up um, commissions and, and worrying about the fact that you know they could see that the forests were starting to get pushed to a state where they were seriously depleted and by the mid 19th century there was a forest act put in place and um, a uh, a forest service um, in fact, it was one of the the first such conservation organizations. It was called the Imperial Forest Service. It was set up in 1867 in India. And basically, you know, what the British um, uh, government did was to essentially take over all of the forests in India, um, where a lot of people, a lot of Indian people lived, um, principally the, the indigenous people of India who are called Adivasis. Um, so suddenly all these people who'd lived there for centuries and centuries found that the land had been taken out under their feet. You know, They were kicked out or only allowed to uh, live under kind of threat of being rounded up or shot when they went to collect um, uh, relatively non-exploitative, forest products, um, you know, like undergrowth or something like that. Um, But at the same time, the British continued to log the forests. In fact, they um, brought as the first head of the Imperial Forest Service, um, a German, Dietrich Brandeis, who'd been involved in, you know, um, suppressing German peasant uprisings against the creation of parks in Germany. Um, and you know he arrived and did basically the same thing um, in India. So the idea was to have scientific management of India's forests, which meant basically, it's not that you didn't touch the forests; it's just that you were supposed to be taking um, timber out uh, at a rate that didn't surpass the rate that you were planting trees there. Um, so that was the idea behind scientific management. Um, and that notion of um, having some sort of you know, protected areas that you could still exploit is in fact um, uh, pretty widespread around the world. Um, and so you'll find that um, a government will decide it's going to put um, a part of its country in protected area status, but it'll still grant so-called concessions to um, foreign logging companies or you know big um, oil companies, including you know Exxon and uh, all all of the other big oil companies that we know about in the West, um, to come in and, and drill for oil. Um, and in fact, in many cases, the um, subsurface area, the area be- you know below the um, surface of the earth, is explicitly um, kind of legally the property of. The national government so you know even if you have a government saying it's going to protect a particular area and set it aside and preserve its trees and wildlife that's not necessarily legally contradictory to um, giving a concession to uh, mine the area for coal or for oil or something like that so um as as all of that suggests there's a lot of corruption involved, you know, a lot of vested interests. Um, And the same thing happens in national lands in the United States too, right? Where we have a whole history of uh, oil and and coal exploration going forward. Um, So, yeah, once you start to think about conservation and some of its contradictions and how it's played out around the world, the idea that setting up a national park or a protected area is going to um, make sure that we... We're not exploiting the land, um, uh, you know. That, that that starts to seem highly questionable. And you
0: point out, as you were just saying, the first and most paradigmatic uh, model for global uh, conservation, according to historians, was the Indian Forest Act of 1865. With this law, the British Raj claimed the right to declare any land in India covered with trees the property of the colonial government. In one fell swoop, the customary rights of millions of Indian people to the forests that they had managed sustainably for centuries were revoked. So is conservation about eliminating indigenous practices? Is it it trying to erase the cultural history of the indigenous people who make the forests and the land sustainable?
2: Yes. Yes, it is. I mean, um, as we've been talking about, conservation is a form of colonization. When it's when it's practiced in the kind of protected area, um, wilderness legacy that we've been discussing here. Um, uh, you know, ideally, uh, we'd like to see co- uh, conservation decolonized, and we'd like to see other forms of conservation that respect Indigenous people's sovereignty, um, You know, respect the right to free prior and informed consent, which the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples um, says is necessary, but all too often that doesn't happen. So um, this might seem incomprehensible, but let me give you a, a concrete example of something that's happening right now that um, really shows how conservation doesn't respect the rights of Indigenous people. Um, so... Right after we published our book, Decolonized Conservation, um, my my friends um, at uh, Survival International, um, Simon Council, and others produced this report called Blood Carbon. Um, And the report looks specifically at the Northern Kenya Grassland Carbon Project. Um, What exactly is the Northern Kenya Grassland Carbon Project? Okay, so it's a conservation project set up by this um, trust called the Northern Rangelands Trust, which is run by uh, a white English dude, um, descendant of colonizers, British colonizers of Kenya. Um, And the idea is that this um, project run by the Northern Rangelands Trust is going to go into Northern Kenya um, and is essentially going to set aside A large amount of land, um, roughly 2 million hectares of land um, in areas where it already has conservancies um, and in areas where there are 100,000 people living. And these are indigenous Maasai, Samburu, Burana, Rendile people um, who are all pastoralists, right, which means basically they live um, by... Caring for camels, sheep, and goats and moving them around on, on land based on, you know, the rainfall patterns um, from year to year to make sure that they're able to, to graze. And so what the Northern Kenland Grassland Carbon Project proposes to do is to teach these people so-called planned rotational grazing. In other words, scientific management basically of their of their um, cattle um, in a way that's going to allow vegetation to regrow more pro- prolifically. And the idea is, um, you know, according to this project, that as the vegetation grows, it's gonna absorb more carbon, right? Um, uh, and, and in doing so, it's going to allow all of these big polluting corporations, um, Netflix, for instance, um, has already, um, sold a, a huge, uh, been sold a huge block <clears throat> of these carbon offsets, and so has Facebook, so that they can say, oh, you know, we're doing the right thing, we're not polluting, we, you, <laughs> you might burn up a lot of carbon um, by checking your Facebook page all the time, but don't worry, because it's all being offset through the Northern Rangelands, uh, uh, Northern Kenya Grassland Carbon Project. Um, but all of this is based on the completely colonial ideology, right? It supposes that you know this um, conservation organization based in the UK knows better than the indigenous people who've been in, living in that area sustainably for, for thousands of years, um, you know, what makes the most sense for them and their cattle. Um, and It presumes that these organizations that are coming in from the outside understand how to take care of the cattle and sustain people's way of life while that whole ecosystem is in crisis as a result of the climate crisis, which the global north and the big corporations that are doing carbon offsetting are responsible for. So it's based on incredibly colonial mindset that, you know, Western um organizations know better than indigenous people we're going to kind of these these organizations are going to come in and tell the indigenous people what to do um how to behave how to live sustainably and probably you know that will uh, by the way um, protocols of free prior and informed consent for the pastoral folks in northern Kenya have have not been put in place for for this project Um, And what will happen if their cattle stray outside the areas that the organization says that they're supposed to be in? Well, it's likely that those cattle will get shot or that the people trying to retrieve them will get shot or arrested or raped or any of the other kinds of gross human rights violations that big conservation organizations um, and the the people who they employ uh, regularly commit. Um, in global South countries. Um, so it's this, this massive boondoggle of a project based on long-standing kind of colonial prejudices that see pastoralists as incapable of managing their own environments. Um, and it perpetuates this horrendous carbon offsetting scheme, right, where we supposedly are building back biodiversity so that Big corporations in the global north can continue to pollute, but when you start to look at it, not only is it based on colonial ideologies, but it's a shell game that collapses because you know uh, the project is not, in fact, uh, verifiably um, leading to re- revegetation um, in these areas, uh, and so it's selling these entirely fictitious carbon credits to big corporations um, and also helping to exacerbate human Rights violations, not to mention the climate crisis in general. So that one project, and and there are many other instances of these kinds of so-called nature-based solutions um, that are unfolding all around the world. But that one project, kind of in a nutshell, gives you a sense of what we're decrying, um, uh, you know, what we're saying is unsustainable, and what has got to change about the way that corporate conservation is working at the moment.
0: That. Uh... Facebook and Netflix's uh, their carbon offsets are being paid for by people who are losing their way of life. That's just absolutely stunning. That's right. That's That's so disturbing on so many levels. So here again, we're talking about the role of Western science in colonialism. You know, people had all these signs all over their front yards that say, believe in science, which I understand their good intentions. They wanted people to believe in the science when it came to uh, the way in which we can catch and distribute COVID. I understand that. But what happens when we just believe in science? What happens to indigenous peoples when we just believe in science? What happens when we miss that colonial part of Western science?
2: Yeah, well... I mean, you know, science science is definitely a tool and a discourse that has been used for dispossession. And so we need to think critically about it, um, but it can also be used uh, to fight oppressive power. Um, and so, you know, there've been a lot of scientific studies that which, which we cite in our work that show that indigenous people are actually the best stewards of biodiversity. Um, and, you know, that by giving them sovereignty over their land we're going to be able to uh, actually support um, biodiversity and make a meaningful response to the biodiversity crisis and the climate crisis at the same time. Because, you know, this is increasingly what's happening. The, the biodiversity crisis and the climate crisis um, uh, are often not thought of together. Um, in fact, they're two separate United Nations uh, uh Processes to deal with them. You and your listeners, I'm sure, have heard of the Conference of Parties meetings that happen every year, you know, COP27, COP15, all that sort of thing for climate crisis. But they're also confusingly, um, <laughs> Conference of Parties meetings for biodiversity um, that happen also each year. And they're sort of on a separate track. But what you see coming together now is the idea that we can cope with the climate crisis by replenishing biodiversity. So those two separate processes are are kind of coming together. Um, And and so it's important to be skeptical of um, uh, the way in which um, the big conservation organizations are lining up behind these ideas of um, saving the uh, biodiversity through setting aside 30% of the world, or in the cases case of E.O. E. Wilson, who you mentioned at the outset, you know, fifty percent of the planet. Because the question, you know, really is, who's fifty percent of the planet, and under what terms? Um, uh, and and I want to be clear, you know, that um, of course there are kind of uh, anti um, national park discourses that you find on the far. On the far right, you know, the the occupation of national park lands um, in in the west of the United States around the idea that we get to, you know, white people have a right to these lands and have a right to graze them. Um, So I want to be absolutely clear that that's not at all what we're talking about. You know, we're talking about the right uh, of indigenous peoples around the world to um, continue to live in lands that they've occupied um for for many centuries and thousands of years in in many cases and to actually have meaningful governance over that land using the ideas about um the rights of nature and you know the more sort of harmonious uh, ideas about relationships with with nature that are part of indigenous cultures around the planet
0: You write that scientific studies have shown that indigenous practices provide the same or better levels of ecosystem support and protection as protected areas. How can indigenous practices be better for ecosystems than completely leaving them untouched, completely leaving them so-called pristine? How can indigenous practices, how can any kind of human interaction with nature make nature better?
2: Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, let me give you one very specific example of that. Um, so the idea, um, behind the national parks of just not touching, um, uh, timber at all, um, which as we've seen is, is not the case on all federal lands, but, you know, um, in the national parks, that, that's been the idea. That has contributed to some of the massive wildfires that we've seen across the west of, of the United States um, in, in recent years. If you look into um, Native American histories of um, uh, forest maintenance, you see a very different set of ideas uh, which involves sort of controlled burns of the forests. And the idea was that um, you wouldn't you know, burn the forest down to the ground, but you would purposely um, burn certain areas to um, clear out some of the undergrowth, to, to help the, the bigger trees, to help some of the animals uh, who lived in those areas. Um, and that, that actually made these areas much more resilient and prevented the kind of really massive destructive wildfires that we're seeing in recent years from leveling forests. Um, but, you know, Native Americans were not only really kicked out of parks, but they are prohibited from engaging in these kinds of sustainable forestry practices. So, you know, a lot of Native Americans are trying to liaise with um, national parks and bring back these ideas and uh, cite, cite their right to manage uh, the national parks in a way that's sustainable, which is why some of David Troyer's arguments about giving the parks back to um Uh, Native Americans make so much sense you know it's not just a kind of moral form of restitution you know uh, white people took the land away from Native Americans and we should give it back to them that's that's being laid as a claim here it's also the claim that actually Native peoples have much more sustainable traditions of stewardship and management of nature um, uh, in many cases and and you know of course one could talk about sort of um uh you know philosophical or religious ideas that Native American people have um, about preserving the natural world for many generations into the future that are kind of very much the opposite of the kind of capitalist orientation of exploit as much as possible, as quickly as possible, and don't think about the future at all. Um, but one doesn't even have to go there, you can just look at a concrete instance like um, forest management practices of uh, many indigenous peoples um, here in the United States, or the so-called United States, Um, to to get why this kind of argument uh, to return the land back to um, native peoples makes sense.
0: We are speaking with climate Climate Justice activist and post-colonial scholar and writer Ashley Dawson, co-editor of Decolonized Conservation, Global Voices for Indigenous Self-Determination, Land, and a World in Common. This collection of essays is co-edited by Fiore Longo and Survival International. You mentioned Eve Tuck and Wayne Yang, whose essay, Decolonization is Not a Metaphor, arguing that decolonization eliminates settler property rights and settler sovereignty. It requires the abolition of land as property and upholds the sovereignty of native land and people. What is meant by abolition of land as property? If nobody owns the land, are we any more or less responsible for the maintenance of that land? If it's not my land, why should I take care of it?
2: Yeah, no, it's an important question. And um, the idea of the so-called tragedy of of the commons, which is uh, something that uh, this eugenicist scientist named, American scientist named Garrett Hardin first made popular in the late 60s and 1970s, um, I think orients a lot of, Contemporary ideas. So, you know, the idea is, well, if we don't have private property rights, if everything is just kind of collectively held, then there's an incentive for some exploitative individual to graze as much cattle as possible on that common land. And if everybody is doing that, because they all think, oh, well, I just want to get as much as possible. You have the tragedy of the commons, right? Because everyone just basically grazes the commons to the point where it collapses. Um, But all of that, um, you know, all of those ideas that come from Garrett Hardin's essay on the tragedy of the commons are another kind of colonialist thinking because he was talking about the commons in in Europe, right? So sort of medieval land held by peasants in common, but. not just in Europe, but if we look at other examples of commons management regimes around the world, in, including indigenous people and other sort of local communities that are dependent on biodiversity ecosystems, there are very stringent protocols in place uh, to make sure that nobody is overgrazing. You know, people who are overgrazing uh, get talked to seriously. Uh, there are ethics that people grow up with about having to talk to other people and uh, come up with. Uh, agreements about how to manage the commons. Um, and and so, in fact, again, sort of, if you look scientifically at various different examples of the commons around the world, it, those it, um, common property regimes tend to be managed more sustainably than private property, right? Because, yeah, if you have someone with private property, um, then they can do whatever they want on it, and they are not likely to be reacting to collective efforts to talk about what should be done um, and how the community should benefit from. So, you know, common property regimes um, are, are part of a, a kind of broader cultural ethos, and there are all sorts of specific cultural mechanisms put in place to make sure that they that they endure, um, and and that's true for. Um, indigenous people all around the world today, which I think is one of the reasons that the scientific studies that I've alluded to that show that biodiversity um, is more sustainable um, or equally sustainable in indigenous land um, uh, as it is in even the strictest forms of um, protected areas. Uh, That's why that's happening, because of these kinds of uh, cultural traditions of protecting the commons.
3: And
0: you read that the UN recognizes that indigenous people protect 80% of the world's remaining biodiversity, often on land over which they have customary title, a form of ownership that states in both core capitalist and post-colonial nations are all too happy to ignore. So what is meant by customary t- title? Are the ideas of customary title and property in conflict with one another? How, how do they view the world differently?
2: Yeah, customary title basically means that people had agreements um, that were very sophisticated and very strict about how to manage collectively owned land, although saying it was owned, again, kind of imposes our our Western European perspective on it, commonly stewarded land, uh, maybe is a better way of saying it, Um, but you know this goes back to what I was saying at the beginning about doctrines of Terra nullius, right? It was a part of um colonialism to come in and say, "Oh, well, look, nobody actually owns this land, and indigenous people are not actually taking care of it the way that God intended it to be taken care of. You know, this is John Locke, the eighteenth um, century. British philosopher who said God intends us to make the land bear fruit and uh, the Indigenous people aren't doing that. And so we have a right to push them off the land and, uh, you know, do God's will by um, uh, cultivating it um, and imposing private property on it. So that became one of the justifications for colonialism um, and that kind of thing continues today. So, you know, for example, um, when a national park is set up in a place like the Democratic Republic of the Congo, um, you know, often a big Western conservation organization will pay loads of money to uh, the national government to set up that park, and the national government will say, oh, yeah, no problem, there's this area where, you know, nobody has any kind of um, legal right to the land, and so we'll just set the park up there. But, of course, there likely to be people living there, and if they are indigenous people, um, uh, like um, uh, the people who live in many of the rainforests in the Congo and preserve those rainforests, they're likely to have some form of, you know, commons-based customary um, land arrangement um, that the state essentially can't see, right, because a state like the DRC was set up by European colonialists, and it thinks about land along Kind of colonial, still colonial terms. Um, so there really has to be a fight against those legal regimes, but even more broadly against the kind of ideas and orientations that back them up. Um, and and so that's why it's so important to emphasize these questions of indigenous sovereignty over land that they have traditionally um, lived on and the right to free prior and informed consent over any kinds of projects on their land.
0: So through conservation, national parks, is colonialism still ongoing? And for that matter, did it ever stop? Is capitalism still at war with indigeneity?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I I think that people need to think very carefully when they say, see the big Western conservation organizations trotting out their, you know, uh, cute pandas or polar bears and asking for money about the fact that, um, you know, this, this is a colonial enterprise and that many of these organizations have blood on their hands and that they really seriously need to be pushed to change their ways and to respect the rights of Indigenous and, and local communities. And I, I would hope that um, your listeners would also do their um, best to serve support Um, indigenous organizations around the world um, uh, that are campaigning for these kinds of things. And, you know, just a a final word about the collection Decolonized Conservation. Um, You know, I'm so proud of it. Uh, It was a collaboration with um, people from all around the world. And so uh, if people take a look at it, they'll see voices um, from the front lines um, uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, Asia, Um, and Latin America and many other parts of the world, including the United States, uh, of people who are really trying to defend the land and fight back against colonial conservation.
0: And we are going to be working with Ashley to possibly do a series of interviews from this collection. Again, the name of the book is Decolonized Conservation, Global Voices for Indigenous Self-Determination, Land, and a World in Common. And, you know, I was going to send you an email, Ashley, that said, tell me what you think are the best essays. And I hate when people say, judge these by which one is the best You know, I really hate that. What's your favorite movie? What's your favorite food? I hate all that stuff. So I'm just going to be in contact with you, and we're going to figure out exactly what will be the best uh, people to have on the show from your collection of essays. I'm really looking forward to a series of interviews about this because I think this is a really important important message an important lesson that we're only learning now again we're speaking with climate justice activist post-colonial scholar and writer ashley dawson co-editor of Decolonized conservation global voices for indigenous self-determination land and a world in common Uh, This is Ashley's sixth appearance on the show. You can go to thisishell.com and search on Dawson and find all of our conversations. Find out more about Ashley at ashleydawson.info and follow Ashley on Twitter at AshleyDawsonNYC. And do not forget, this was co-edited with the work of the great organization, Survival International. One last question for you, Ashley. And as always, it's the question from hell, the question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. You write that in the face of mounting environmental and social calamities, the only coherent stance must be to join indigenous and local communities around the world in demanding the return of stolen land, respect for their sovereignty, and a radical transformation of the co 2 colonialism, CO2 colonialism, that characterizes the unsustainable behavior and policies of the wealthy. So, must we give all the land back or is it more important for everyone to start engaging in more indigenous-like practices and have a reconsideration of our relationship with the planet? What's more important, giving land back or adopting indigenous practices?
2: Uh, uh, that is a question from, from El Chuck, though our whole conversation began with a discussion of cannibalism, so uh, <laughs> perhaps it's only, only up from that point. But, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I wouldn't see those things as opposed to one another. You know, um, you know, I think we can fight for land back. And the idea of giving U.S. national parks back to Native Americans uh, is really great. But, you know, I think in tandem with that, we could be shifting agriculture towards a sounder basis, towards more sort of agroecological practices. Um, so, yeah, I think we need to do um, both ends. I, I hope that's not passing the buck.
0: (laughs) It's not because a binary is always a trick question. Ashley, I really appreciate you being back on the show. You know, I'm going to annoy you in the future. Let's start working out uh, more interviews from the collection that you worked on uh, because this is really important work. And I think everybody should start thinking about uh, decolonizing conservation. Thank you so much for being on our show again, Ashley.
2: Thanks, Chuck. It was great being with you.
0: All right. Take care.
2: Bye.
0: This is not the media. This is hell, and you can tell this is not the media because you are not going to hear that kind of in-depth conversation about how conservation, about how national parks are just another colonial project. You're not going to hear that anywhere else, so show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which goes live on Patreon at patreon.com slash Hell every Thursday morning at 10 a.m. Chicago time. Or you can show your support for a completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support. So before we spoke with Ashley Dawson on how conservation and national park systems are tools of colonialism, which really freaks me out because that makes me consider the world and our relationship with nature in a completely different way, we shared a message from Sam A., who asked... What anesthetizes you against the terror of existence in the post-colonial climate emergency neo-feudal billionaire playground meat grinder economy? Actually, I forgot to read that email from Sam A. I put in here that I already shared the message, but I hadn't. Sam A. emailed, and that's what he asked. What anesthetizes you against the terror of existence in the post-colonial climate emergency neo-feudal billionaire playground meat grinder economy? Anesthetized means losing feeling or awareness. My answer to Sam's question is that sure, I literally anesthetize myself through regular substance abuse. Which, as this weekend proved, can be dangerous in not only the long term but short term as well. And while I had not read Sam's message before I wrote last week's Patreon monologue, that's right, it was his question from what What Sam asked is exactly, or no, it wasn't. It was just an email I got. What Sam asked is exactly what it was about last week. Our monologue, Patreon monologue, during our most recent Patreon podcast. Each week, the podcast goes live at 10 a.m. Chicago time on Thursdays, which I guess is central daylight savings times now. Uh, The context of that attempted awareness was a visit to central Illinois, Bloomington specifically, which I described in the Patreon monologue, and our conversation on wasted energy and economic growth causing climate change last week with Christopher Ketchum on his article, Green Growth Delusion, which is part of the Truth Dig series, Green Tinted Glasses. So if you want to know... How I try to not anesthetize myself, as well as I try to cope with the meat grinder through awareness, please support completely listener supported This Is Hell by becoming a Patreon patron at patreon.com slash this is hell and check out last week's monologue. Also on Patreon. Speaking of Christopher Ketchum and his, let's call it, sobering take on climate change. We shared an interview from uh, 2010 with Heather Rogers, who was on to talk about her book, Green Gone Wrong How Our Economy is Undermining the Environmental Revolution, which was apparently re released a few years later as Green Gone Wrong Dispatches from the front lines of Eco Capitalism. Kind of a better title. Whatever you call it, in her book, as her publisher's webpage states, Heather asks a simple question Do today's Much-touted green products, carbon offsets, organic food, biofuels, and eco-friendly cars and homes really work. Implicit in efforts to go green is the promise that global warming can be stopped by swapping out dirty goods for clean ones. But can Earth-friendly products really save the planet? By the way, if you did hear Chris Ketchum's interview on last week's show saying things like, when it comes to fighting climate change and killing more people, the virus failed... We got an email from him immediately after our conversation where he writes, See, this is what happens when I do anything before noon. It's all doom and gloom. Thanks for having me on the show. I always enjoy it. And this this week during a new feature on Patreon, a question from hell for me submitted by Patreon patrons and randomly selected by producer Will Ippen was from listener Neil C., who asked, What is your guilty pleasure? But you can can only hear my answer to that question from hell for me every week on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. How I try to cope with the meat grinder through awareness and a 13-year talk on the green growth delusion that Christopher talked about. That's plus a really disgusting uh, picture of me. I I posted this morning, uh, the morning after my face planting on my tile bathroom floor. You can only get all of that by becoming a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. If you do, you will get immediate access to more than five years of Patreon podcasts as well as a special code word that gives you a $5 discount off all of our stuff at thisishell.com when you click on support. Kat, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? And please tell us how our listeners are responding so far on Patreon.
1: This week's question from hell is, what intelligence will you be leaking on our Discord? On Patreon, Matthew C. says, I just spilled water on my lap again, but it's okay. I've got a napkin. (laughs) (laughs) See you next Tuesday says, I won't be. I'm no narc. All right. Aaron D. says, The Grand Theft Auto secret code that allows you to become a strip club owner immediately. (laughs) Todd H. says, Emotional.
0: Aw, That's sweet. Um, <laughs> I like his pithy responses by the way Todd H very good, <laughs>
1: good. Um, Edson C says whatever it is it will be discordant with the official narrative no,
0: no discordant oh my god
1: I see what he did there or what they did there yeah. um, Peter J says that I'm bringing home my baby bumblebee <laughs> what the hell okay <laughs> <laughs> and Fabio L says next week's question from Hell.
0: <laughs> oh, it's a meta answer. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins your choice of whatever this is Hell swag you want. Check out all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com/slash This Is Hell Radio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio. You can email it. To us at Chuck at Hell.com, But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show When we are announcing this week's winner We'll have more of your answers to this week's question from Al later this week And now The past inside the present With Dr. Sebastian Vupper, Who has a PhD in history And this is when he gives us the historical context From the past That we need to have a better understanding of the present Take it away,
3: Sebastian THE PAST INSIDE THE PRESENT Today I want to talk about a topic that is basically always a pressing issue in American political discourse and also in American historical discourse and in American discourse in general, I guess. And that topic is, well, in the widest sense, Christianity and how Christianity in the American context often gets flattened into something that seems to always lead into and towards crystal fascism. You know, the kind of Christianity that is all about oppressing anyone who isn't following your exact and very narrow brand of faith, that is all about being upset that other people do things your God says they can't do, and uh, whatever else. The kind of Christianity that kind of misunderstands what Christianity is all about— Because, and as a very lapsed Catholic and confirmed agnostic, it pains me to say Christianity as it should be practiced, you know, if you reset the whole thing to factory settings and practice as this guy, uh, what's his name again? Uh, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Um, has intended, then Christianity is actually not a religion that makes you lick the polish off the boots of the powerful, but is actually a fairly radical religion that's all about sticking with the downtrodden and sticking it to the powerful, and like not in a way that is you know pleasant for the powerful, uh, because Jesus was a radical, a communist, a rabble rouser. He certainly was not crucified for being too nice to the rich elites. But if you want to get into all of the notions of the historical Jesus, which are all fascinating, grab a book like Reza Aslan's Zealot, The, life and, uh, the Time and Life of uh, Jesus of Nazareth, or, you know, go and follow Dan McClellan on TikTok. Um, but no, today I wanted to relate something I learned at a talk given here in Rapids Historical Society the other week by Dr. Elizabeth Chamberlain. Uh, of Aquinas College, about the Dominican sisters of Grand Rapids and how especially Catholic women religious represent a brand and interpretation of Christianity that this year agnostic leftists could actually get behind. Uh, First, a quick primer on the differences. Sisters are not nuns. Both nuns and sisters, however, are women religious. Sisters don't usually live cloistered lives and don't usually wear habits. That's nuns. Nuns are generally more introverts, spending time amongst themselves and in prayer. Sisters are more concerned with going into the world and doing stuff that actually helps people. Uh, And so what does this look like? Well, the Dominican Sisters of Grand Rapids and other such orders around the country were, for lack of a better term, social justice warriors. Or are, for lack of a better term, social justice warriors. So in the 1960s, for example, it was these sisters who organized and partook in a whole slew of civil rights marches. Because it was the right thing to do. In the 1980s, the sisters here, locally in Grand Rapids, organized a home for women women who wanted to leave a life of prostitution. But it was also the peak of the AIDS crisis, so prostitutes were especially looked down upon. Nobody wanted to deal with these women. You know how American society is. People make mistakes, uh, but they need to practice personal responsibility and all that nonsense. Uh, It's not society who needs to give give anyone who's fallen on hard times a leg up. Especially not when they're, you know, yucky like prostitutes who likely carry diseases. No, sir. Uh, and so the sisters literally did the most Christ-like thing and took these former prostitutes, or you know, like aspiring former prostitutes, in, because you know Jesus in the Bible, and in several instances, forgives prostitutes and adulterers, takes in the poor and dregs of society, and uh, does not just give them a, you know, a stern talking to and says that they should pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. Uh, but of course, this is Grand Rapids in the 1980s. And so the city would have none of this. Not in our backyard, just did the city fall cry. And uh, so after a lot of back and forth, the home for fallen women had to be given up because of the other kinds of good Christians around here, you know. Which is so reminiscent of so many other stories uh, like that where zealous evangelical NIMBY types torpedo church-run homeless shelters and the like. Because, well, we may be Christian, but caring for these people, poor people, that's something they have done to themselves. So they have to get themselves out of that hole and, you know, certainly not, you know, where our children play or something. The real stars of today's segment, however, are sisters Jackie Hudson, Carol Gilbert, and Ardeth Platt. These sisters became active in the peace movement as early as the 1980s, and they protested nuclear weapons in the 80s, to the point where Jackie Hudson was arrested for trespassing onto Wurtsmith Air Force Base in Michigan, uh, where she painted Christ Lives Disarm onto one of the buildings. In 2000, the three sisters were arrested after breaking into Peterson Air Force Base in Colorado and sprinkling some of their own blood on a fighter plane. Uh, Their biggest claim to fame, however, came during the Iraq War uh, in the early 2000s when uh, the sisters traveled to Washington, D.C. and uh, protested the war at the Pentagon, tossing blood bags on the side of the building. And they were again arrested for their action there. The most metal of these good sisters' actions however came in 2002 when the three troublemakers broke into a Minuteman 3 missile silo in Colorado there they drew across uh, across the egress hatch of the missile in their in their own blood which they had brought in a vial and then they sat down to pray awaiting their arrest and they prayed for quite a while since it took the personnel at the missile silo about an hour or so to figure out that they had been invaded and the silo defaced Sister Jackie was again incarcerated after she and 13 other sisters trespassed onto the Oak Ridge Y-12 National Security Complex in Tennessee, you know, the one of the nuclear laboratories where we built nukes. She was released again in June 20- 20 due to her poor health. And other Dominican sisters had similar careers. Sister Kelly Sister Cal- who was an accomplice of Sister Jackie, many of the actions was arrested in 1998 for damaging a B-52 bomber with hammers uh, during an air show at Andrews Air Force Base in Maryland outside of D.C. Sister Carol was labeled a terrorist for her actions by the state of Maryland. My sister Jackie Hudson, Carol Gilbert, and Ardeth Platt spent between 30 and 41 months in prison for breaking into the Minuteman Sino. And this is how Sister Ardeth served as inspiration for the character of Sister Jane Ingalls on the Netflix series Orange is the New Black. The more you know. The activism of these sisters is noteworthy for many reasons. First, as I said, it is indicative of uh, there being a different kind of Christianity possible, one that is not concerned with keeping others down and always giving in to the demands of power, but one that follows and engages in the radicalism that is inherent in the faith, but that is so rarely actually practiced. Their activism also belies many stereotypes about women religious. These sisters are not downtrodden introverts who want nothing to do with the world, have secluded themselves away, and only pray for better things to come without really doing anything about it. No, no. (laughs) These old gals went out and grabbed the world by the horns. And also, their radicalism shows that radical activism is by no means a game that should be left only to the young people. Here we have women religious in their 50s and 60s who broke into federal military installations fully knowing that they would be incarcerated for their actions. Here we have a group of religious sisters who actively engaged in a a variety of social justice issues and who did not shy away from controversy and radically standing for what's right. Practicing a much more direct and much more radical form of Christian conviction that flies in the face of evangelical bigotry that embraces the poor, downtrodden, and social outcasts. Now, of course, there are still issues here that come with most Catholic organizations, uh, like you know, like opposition to abortion and all these things. However, the Vatican itself tends to consider American sisters, specifically, a headache, specifically because American Catholic sisterhoods have developed this reputation for being outspoken, radical, and more active than the church leaders would like them to be. And so, even if I personally will never not be skeptical of anything organized religion, I can't help but at least feel a certain kind of respect for these people and wish that more so-called Christians were actually, you know, following in their footsteps. Sister Jackie passed away at age 76 in 2011. Sister Ardeth followed at uh, age 86 in 2020. Um, Sister Carol, however, is still around. The numbers of the Dominican sisters are dwindling because, well, there's not, not a lot of women left today who want to join a re- religious monastic order, which is a whole other story. I mean, church membership is dwindling for reasons I don't have to go into right now, or I don't have time to go into right now, rather. But knowing that there's old women religious out there who want to stand up to NIMBY types and the military-industrial complex, that's the thing that, you know, makes this hell of a world we live in a little less so. And for that, I'm quite grateful. And here's to hoping there can be more of those. I mean, not as in sisters, but as in, you know, Christians who embrace the radicalism that should be much more inherent, uh, that should be much more prevalent, brother, in their religion.
0: And should be at the heart of their religion as well. Uh, my yeah. The person who uh, would ostensibly be my sister-in-law if I was actually married, she converted from being raised as... My girlfriend was, and that is as an atheist, not like they were going to atheist church or anything like that, but they, but their father's an astrophysicist. And so he was just like, look, there's just no God. Okay, end of story. Let's move on. So uh, she actually, my sister-in-law, converted to Catholicism. And she asked me, what do you think of that? And I said, as I was somebody who was born into the church, I can tell you. Nobody converts to Catholicism. You only leave the church. That's the only process that happens. So she was like, okay, I don't want to talk to you about this anymore. The other day she tells me, you know, I haven't gone to church for a few months. And I was like, really, why? And she was just like, I don't know. I'm not crazy about my church, you know. And I said, well, now you are a true Catholic. (laughs) <laughs> because you're not going to church That's what a true Catholic does They only go on Easter and Christmas And that's about it How, What's new about you in Grand Rapids What uh, led you to this Grand Rapids research
3: uh, That was just because I wanted to you know, connect with the local uh, History community And they had this uh, event And I attended and uh, learned a few things About women religious That's that's basically all that, all that was to it And then I was looking for a topic to talk about this week And I was like hey why not you know work on this that's very cool local history is very cool yeah I yeah. always really appreciate it Sebastian
0: great to hear your voice sir
3: yeah always great to be and to
0: be in uh, the neck of your woods in a couple of weeks I'll shoot you an email and tell you what I'm gonna be doing oh
3: yeah Thanks, all right too. take care
0: all right thank you Bye. Sebastian uh, Kat, who is our next guest here on this is how
1: um, we have Alex dewall will be returning to This Is Hell to discuss his World Peace Foundation article. Sudan is tearing itself apart and Washington lost its capacity to help. The truth is that no one was doing the basics of multilateral diplomacy to prevent the bloody power struggle we're all witnessing today. Alex is <laughs> executive director. Sorry, it was a little long. <laughs> it's a long title. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, Alex is uh, the executive director of the World Peace Foundation and research professor at the Fletcher School of Global Affairs, Tufts University, Tufts University, and professorial fellow at the London School of Economics. Alex was on our show back in 2015 to discuss a book edited and wrote for the essay collection Advocacy in Conflict, Critical Perspectives on Transnational Activism.
0: And then on Wednesday, who's our guest?
1: On Wednesday, we'll be having writer and publisher, Charlotte Shane, who wrote the n plus one article three times, the pregnancy was the crisis, not the abortion. Charlotte has a new book coming out later this month titled *Prostitute Laundry*.
0: I had originally I sent an interview request to Dr. Laura Colby, who also has an article on abortion at N One's new in their newest issue, and she said that she was unavailable. So she suggested we have Charlotte on the show. But Dr. Colby, who is an MD, told uh, in her article, which is absolutely amazing. You should go check it out at N plus One magazine. Is about how medical professionals, MDS. You know, physicians who work in emergency rooms, they are not trained in how to give emergency abortion services. The lack of education within the medical ranks when it comes to how to actually perform an abortion is outstanding it's it's insane how much how little they know about how to actually give an emergency abortion especially in the emergency room it's very disturbing also coming up later this week we will have this week in rotten history we will reveal what is happening on this week's patreon podcast which streams live on Thursday mornings at 10 a.m uh, it actually just goes live on Thursdays at pa- patreon.com/ this is hell we will ha- also hear a singular moment of truth from Jeff Dortch and Kat what is Jeff talking about this week?
1: Jeff wonders if we're all Waco.
0: <laughs> I thought it said Waco originally.
1: Yeah, I almost said Waco.
0: <laughs> and then I, I, was, Waco. I saw a little bit of that TV series about Waco on HBO this week, and mm-hmm. it looked kind of good, but I don't want to promote anybody's show. <laughs> and we'll uh, announce this week's winner of this week's question from Hell. Uh, this week's winner gets their choice of This Is Hell merchandise absolutely free. You can see all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host, podcast, and live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Kate Jarvanen for producing. Thanks to Will Ippen for shadowing Kate Cat, Kat. I really appreciate it. If I say Kate one more time, shoot me in the face. <laughs> keep me in mind. Keep this in mind. A lot of the questions I ask were written while I was high. This is hell.